for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. So, Sarah Camp, when you think of Houston, Texas, what comes to mind? Lizzo? The Astros? The Rodeo? Eh, I was thinking more along the lines of one of the most vibrant international food scenes in the country. Oh, yeah, that too. Great. (laughs) I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. You're listening to Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Gravy tells stories of the changing American South. Today, Kayla Stewart takes us to her hometown of Houston, Texas for a taste, several tastes actually, of West African cuisine. Houston is a special place. It's my hometown for starters. And it's a place where people from all over the world can find comfort and community. It's home to more than 1.6 million immigrants, making Houston one of the most diverse cities in the United States. In Houston, where Black Americans have created their own communities and pathways to success, and where diversity is prized, West African immigrants have built community for decades. Hailing from countries like Ghana, Senegal, and Nigeria, these immigrants have pursued educational opportunities and created their own stories in the city, including through food. So. Why is Houston the center of this renaissance? To understand how and why Houston became a place for West African cuisine to flourish, I started at Safari Restaurant. Hi, how you doing? Hi, I'm Kayla Stewart, it's nice to meet you. Kavachi Ukebu is the proud Nigerian-American daughter of Margaret and Hector Ukebu. In 1996, when Kavachi was a child, the Ukebu family opened up Safari, one of Houston's first major Nigerian restaurants on the city's southwest side. Nigerians are Houston's largest West African immigrant group. Currently, the Pew Research Center reports that there are about 52,000 Nigerian immigrants, about the same number as in New York City. Immigrant groups came to this part of the city early, in part thanks to the less expensive housing, and have been able to live and thrive, bringing mosques and other religious institutions, community centers, and local markets to the area. Kavachi and I met at Safari and drove to some of those markets, like Wazobia African Market, which, true to Houston's landscape, is nestled in a strip center that's also home to a crawfish restaurant, a beauty supply store, and a clothing shop. When it comes to uh, Nigerian food, we always want to have a certain taste. A large painting of a Nigerian market hovered above us as Afrobeats blared from the speakers, and we perused the aisles of cassava, scotch bonnet peppers, yams, palm oil, and dried fish, all ingredients integral to the foodways of the African diaspora. We then went to Makola Marketplace, where containers of honeycomb and fresh beef skin and beef shank were available, alongside aisles of produce and to-go containers of jollof. We even went to Buki Enterprises, one of the city's largest suppliers of Nigerian ingredients to West African restaurants like Safari. I met Buki Hamet, who has served Houston's West African community for more than 30 years. This African food store, we sell wholesale to all the retailers. 
and we import our product from all different African countries like Nigeria, Ghana, uh, Cameroon, and Togos, and South Africa too. And we have been in the business for the past 35 years. I'm very glad that my people from my country or from generally from Africa, they can see what they are missing back home from Bouquet Enterprises. These business owners in the markets have come to serve a large and growing number of West African immigrants. But before there was Makola and Wazobia, there was Safari, the place Kavachi's family opened in the 90s. If you were close to Nigerians and you were going to their parties when you were young, then you were very familiar with Safari. Safari helped appease the homesickness many Nigerians felt when they first arrived in the U.S. in the late 20th century. They were jonesing for fufu. They were jonesing for a swallow. It wasn't like they had a lot of options. I sat with Kavachi at Safari as refrigerators roared loudly, children and elderly customers conversed, and waiters served guests bowls of soups and stews accompanied by fufu starchy, doughy balls that are often served alongside West African dishes. To understand why the restaurant is so significant and how Kavachi's parents, and many immigrants like them, navigated Houston's historic Third Ward in Southwest Houston, we've got to understand Houston's Black community during the 1970s and 80s and the landscape of Nigeria during the second part of the 20th century. For this, I turn to Kavachi's uncle, Texas Southern University professor Dr. Christian Ulasi. I know that with the high number of Nigerians that were attending Texas Southern in the 70s and 80s, the university itself took particular interest in that African country. Dr. Ulasi, who goes by Chris, has taught for decades in the School of Communications at TSU, a historically black college and university in the historically black Third War neighborhood. During the 1960s and particularly the 1970s, decades critical to the black power movement across the country, black universities were looking for ways to connect with African countries, and vice versa. When the U.S. passed the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, it became easier for Africans to migrate to the U.S. Soon after, TSU welcomed a huge number of students from several African countries, particularly from Nigeria. This was a period of political instability in Nigeria. The Nigerian Civil War was technically only three years, culminating in 1970, but the brutal war created emotional, economic, and political ramifications in the country. Many Nigerians sought new opportunities in the United States, as did immigrants from nearby countries like Ghana, Senegal, and Liberia. Houston, thanks to its numerous universities, ample job opportunities, and hot, familiar climate, was appealing. So a lot of people migrated here. And also, they, they were going to a fine institution like Texas Southern, somewhere at U of H, and a very small number went to at Rice. And so that's really how that whole thing started. And once they were here, they looked for the foods they loved from home. Initial students who came basically found no restaurants or stores that served Nigerian food or even grocery stores where you can buy specific Nigerian or West African uh, produce. Kavachi's parents were part of this educational migration to the U.S. 
Cavacci's father studied economics at Rutgers University in New Jersey, while her mom studied pre-law at TSU. As they pursued their degrees, making friends with other Nigerian immigrants, they, like their peers, were missing their preparations of okra and yam, longing for the warming stews flavored with scotch bonnet peppers and curry powder. And they missed community. This is where Kavachi's mom, who'd come from generations of women who worked in food, saw an opportunity. She realized that there was a lot of Nigerians that were attending TSU that were missing back home. With a background of selling food street-side in Nigeria, Kavachi's mom, Margaret, knew how to attract consumers. She started cooking and selling Nigerian food out of her home, like rice dishes and plantain. Once people find out, they seem to, you know, uh, congregate or come together or try to live closer so that they can interact and find a reason to create a unique ecosystem uh, that will help them enjoy and celebrate their culture. Margaret's household operation became so popular that she basically became a local catering hero. Nigerian families would invite her to cook for weddings or family and community functions. She'll pop her trunk open and start selling to students at TSU. So people knew her of a, of a market woman. She was selling rice, chicken, plantain. When she started making the soups, that's when everything took off. Because she would travel to Nigeria and smuggle all of the core spices and seasoning. She would sell crayfish, smoked fish. She knew the system. She was a food dealer of Houston. Margaret continued this business structure into the 1980s. In the 90s, she and Hector opened Safari in southwest Houston, where many local Nigerians were establishing their homes. The area was less expensive than Third Ward, and it had become known as the center of Houston's immigrant life, with Vietnamese refugees arriving in large numbers, alongside other immigrant groups coming with their own stories and hopes. At Safari, you'll find traditional Nigerian dishes like pepper soup with goat meat, egusi soup, and plantain. A lot of the food served at Safari reflects the immense diversity in West Africa and in Houston. We have like Senegal, we have Ghana, we have Cameroon, we have Liberia, all here in Houston. Kavachi's father passed away, but her mom still operates the restaurant. Kavachi helps her and is proud of Safari's status as a place where families, civic leaders, and politicians from across the West African diaspora have been able to enjoy good food and community in a traditional space. They've been around for more than 25 years, a huge accomplishment for a restaurant. And Kavachi's proud of what that longevity means. I mean, I've seen five generations come through here. Five. It's like, well, my mom ate it, my grandmother ate it, I'm eating it, now my children are eating it. So it's like you see the generations. This is like a generational restaurant. Some of those same initial customers from the 1980s still come to Safari. The pictures that I have of them, it was just so weird to see these 17, 18-year-old, 20-year-olds who are now grandfathers who have beer bellies and stay loyal to eating fufu at least six times a week, they know that my mom will give them a taste of home. Since Safari opened, Kavachi's aunt has opened up a food store. 
Nigerian families have opened up markets in and outside of southwest Houston. But something else has happened, too. Over time, Houston has become an incubator of sorts for West African chefs and restaurateurs to get creative and to explore the possibilities of West African dining. When we come back, Kayla Stewart explores how West African food goes fast casual and then fancy. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey! Travel the highways to Loretto, Kentucky, and you'll find the Maker's Mark Distillery. A National Historic Landmark, the distillery welcomes visitors from all over the world to experience bourbon the way the Samuels family intended. The bourbon was created by Bill Samuels Sr., but the distillery in the bottle, with each bottle hand-dipped in that iconic red wax, was the brainchild of his wife, Margie Samuels. Today, Margie and Bill's grandson, Rob, runs a distillery and invites everyone to stop by and experience a home place of Maker's Mark just the way his grandparents had with friends and great bourbon. For their dedication to the craft of quality bourbon making and their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Makers Mark crafts bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. Big shout outs to the city. Big shout outs to Houston. Um, I always say, you know, one time for the city, two times for the culture. That's my, uh, that's, that's my go-to there. I first met Ope Amosu while reporting on the expansion of West African fast casual dining in the U.S. Ope is quintessentially Houston. Every time I've seen him, he's well-dressed and on a mission, hustling towards his ambition of bringing West African food to the world. He's the owner of Chop and Block, a West African fast casual restaurant in post-Houston, a downtown food hall. Chop means to eat in Pidgin English, a common language rooted in English and spoken across Nigeria and serves as a nod to the chopped and screwed rap genre that originated in Houston. It's also representative of Ope, a globally influenced Houstonian. He was born in England to parents of Nigerian descent and spent his toddler years between London and Lagos. When he was four years old, his parents moved to Houston for promising job opportunities. Surrounded by a large and growing West African community, they were able to maintain Nigerian traditions in their household, and make regular visits to their homeland. Typical of most Nigerian households, Ope grew up eating a lot of rice. He recalls traditional dishes that influenced him early on, dishes that inspire some of the food found at Chop and Block. We always had Obe Ata Dindin, which is like a, a Nigerian-style red stew. For festive occasions, we started to pull out the jollof and uh, the agusi. Um, we're from an area in uh, Nigeria called Ogun State, 
And uh, my mother, she's from an area called Ijebu. And Ijebu's staple dish is uh, Egusi Ijebu, um, which is gr- ground melon seeds. The other thing that really is fond of me is a dish that um, my grandmother loved. And uh, it's, uh, it's called Ikokore, which is like water yam. Ope loved Nigerian food, but he also loved food from other parts of the world, too. Ope went to college in Missouri on a football scholarship, and it was there that he first began to realize that West African food deserved better representation in the restaurant industry. And that's when I started to say, man, this isn't right. Like, this is a fundamental flaw in society because I know that this culture and the representation is uh, is definitely beautiful, and it represents, you know, over 50 million people in this country. Why is it that I always have to go out of my way and bypass other cultural gateways to come and get my own. Ope got his MBA at Rice University in Houston and went on to work corporate positions at large companies in different parts of the country. But he still had this lingering feeling. While he could find great Nigerian food in southwest Houston, he wasn't seeing the story of his cuisine, nor did he see other non-African cultures engaging with West African food like they did with other international cuisines, in places outside of tightly knit West African communities. What really brought me into the industry was the storytelling. I'm not just trying to tell the Nigerian story, I'm really trying to uh, tell the West African story. I felt that if I had uh, the opportunity to really have an imprint on this narrative where more um, light is being shined on African culture in general, I wanted to make sure that that narrative wasn't misinterpreted or even um, misrepresented. Getting the narrative right was so important to Ope that he took on a second job as a prep cook at Chipotle. Here, Ope learned how to work in and manage a kitchen staff, but he also learned the beauty of fast casual cuisine. To communicate his cuisine to a broad audience, he opened Chop and Block, a fast casual restaurant that has charmed Nigerian artists and entertainers. But more than its celebrity credentials and social media popularity, it's become a cultural hub for Houston's diverse eaters. With greenery hanging about, cookbooks by Black chefs and authors, carefully curated artwork, and music from some of the most popular Black musicians, the fun and carefree atmosphere matches that of a quintessentially hip restaurant. No matter what time of day you visit Chop and Block, the line is filled with patrons from all over the world, eager to dig into West African cuisine. It's two things that regardless of your background, you're going to resonate with. That's good food and a good beat. Those are universal languages. Ope infuses his food with local Black American flavors. Think jollof jambalaya rice and five-spice grilled chicken. Bowls are filled with Nigerian honey beans, rich curries, and West African spices and ingredients. Suya spice, peanuts, and peppers are hits, as are Ope's other creations. Like the Olga Palmer, his take on bisup, a refreshing blend of hibiscus, lemonade, and basil, and yaji coconut pops, a spicy kettle corn snack flavored with coconut, sugar, salt, and yaji, which is another word for suya spice. But beyond the dishes themselves, the fast casual concept allows Ope to create a learning experience for Houstonians. Through customizable bowls and a friendly staff willing to explain various ingredients and spices, Ope created an atmosphere that made the cuisine more accessible to new audiences in the heart of downtown Houston, where working professionals, students, and Houstonians from various backgrounds could more easily access West African cuisine. I feel like we have an educational 
uh, charter uh, to also fulfill as well as it comes to this. And a lot of this to me is is why I say what we're doing is, is bigger than just food. At Blue Dorn, an award-winning, elegant restaurant in Houston's downtown, Senegalese American general manager Sharif Mboch is finding ways to share his West African story, too. Born and raised in Senegal, Sharif remembers large family-setting dinners, many rice-based dishes, and thanks to Senegal's proximity to the coast, tons of fresh seafood. After coming to the U.S. around 2000 on a soccer scholarship, he quickly found work in restaurants throughout the country, developing his culinary philosophy and carrying his Senegalese identity along the way. I was very lucky to find myself being able to come to this country and pursue my education and always being surrounded by people who always seem to have interest in who I was, my identity as a Senegalese uh, immigrant in this country. I, I find it to be very exciting to share, to just tell my story, sitting at a restaurant, enjoying a meal, and telling them about Senegalese food. Eventually, Sharif ended up in New York, working with chef Aaron Bludorn at Café Boulud. A friendship quickly blossomed, and the two spent a lot of time in Little Africa in Harlem and New York, where they could enjoy exceptional Senegalese food, like yassa, which is marinated chicken, fish, or lamb prepared with spices and ingredients like lemons and onions, and mafe, a rich and complex peanut stew, and of course, chebuchen, which is considered the original jollof rice. It took me leaving my homeland, Senegal, to understand my, my food culture better. Because there is a part of it that's here. And when you connect the dots, you see truly the identity of West African cuisine. And when Sharif and Aaron came to Houston to open Blue Dorn in 2020, Sharif was pleasantly surprised to see a city that offered the sort of diversity and openness that might allow for a West African dish to show up in a fine dining restaurant. I generally thought prior to coming to Houston that most people who I would meet here would be from here. That turned out to be the furthest thing from the truth. And the, the strong influences of cultures from across the world, the way it, it, they, they just all meet in this city in a way that just works. And it works not, not by design, but it happens naturally and organically. It's something that I, that I picked up on and, and like a lot. As Sharif focused on opening the restaurant and handling the business side of operations, Aaron noticed something. I look around and, you know, I'm allowed to express myself on the menu. How is, how is Sharif doing that? The duo talked candidly, and while Sharif was excited about bringing West African food to the menu, he'd become accustomed to seeing European food as the center of Michelin star restaurants. I didn't see that angle at first. But he, you know, the more we talked about it, the more I saw, yes, there is a possibility to do that. That possibility turned into a crab jollof rice, a riff on the chebuchen that Sharif had grown up with. The two actually came up with a dish while at Cafe Balud in NYC, but they brought it to Houston as a dinner special, transforming it into one of the most popular dishes at the restaurant. It's got a gorgeous blend of ingredients like Anson Mills Carolina gold rice, tomato, onion, garlic and lobster crab stock, and is covered in a crab etouffee infused with lemongrass and macroot lime. It's all topped with a fragrant salad of toasted peanuts, cilantro, mint, and basil. Then we have a little bit of the tamarind puree on the bottom to give it some, just to sort of, like, along with the lime to get a little bit of that acidity. 
As the executive chef, Aaron is responsible for actually cooking the dish, but he and Sharif spent a lot of time developing a dish that reflected Sharif's heritage and the various influences in his life. So this is the onions, the garlic, and tomato, mostly tomato, that, that Sharif was talking about. You know, his mom would cook in the morning and, and cook probably for maybe like an hour. We take the, the broken Carolina gold rice after, after this is warmed up and then we toast it. We'll toast it in that, that base. And the, the oil will kind of, will coat all the grains and, and just give it a nice toastiness so it doesn't overcook when we, yeah, there you go. And for Sharif, seeing jollof rice prepared and plated with the same care and attention as dishes like gulf chipino and short rib ravioli is both empowering and a hopeful sign about the changing nature of American dining. Jollof rice is a big part of my culture. We love that dish. Sharing a part of that to express our own identity and, and have people from everywhere come sit and enjoy the dish, discover it and be excited about that, for me, is the biggest reward. The dish is a restaurant special that cost upwards of $30. And while Aaron and Sharif admit it might not meet the standards of jollof rice purist, it, importantly, expands the definition of West African cuisine and counters the status quo of what belongs on a fine dining menu. I am very aware that there is not very many Senegalese people who've been able to do what I've done. And I don't take it for granted. And with that comes the pride of showing that Senegalese food can be identified in fine dining establishment, can be put in a menu where it has its place with other exclusive or expensive luxury dishes or things like that. We can do this. For West African chefs and restaurateurs, West African food isn't simply a box to check off on a list of Houston's many cuisines. It is integral to Houston's food story because Houston is a place where West Africans are in every part of the city's culture and thus feel empowered to share their cuisine, their way, on their terms. There's a good chance that if you are not of the diaspora, you have a limited number of degrees of separation between you and someone who is, right? So either you work with somebody who's of the West African diaspora, you go to school with them, you're friends with them, your children are friends with them. And so there is that, you know, natural curiosity or even just a natural openness that if this narrative is brought to your forefront, you may be more accepting to try to listen through and, and hear what it's all about or in our case, taste the flavors. It's this sort of proximity that allows restaurant leaders like Ope, Kavachi, and Sharif to feel empowered in Houston, where they can use various forms of dining, like traditional, fast casual, and yes, even fine dining, to tell a myriad of stories about West Africa. Stories that extend well beyond reductive tropes and narratives about the entire continent. My story is, uh, is that the West African culture is progressive. It serves as a foundation and has birthed a lot of other cultures. And ultimately, I'm trying to give it its props, right? Give it its flowers. At the same time, too, I'm trying to shift us away from thinking of the region or even Africa as a whole as um, a continent that's solely in need. It's a provider. It's strong. It's resourceful. And honestly, it's, it's cool. It's dope. Like, you should learn more about it. For West Africans... 
there's no better place to do this work than Houston. We're in Houston, Texas. What better city than to truly express ourselves for who we are as people? Kayla Stewart reported and produced this episode. She previously reported on Houston's West African food scene for the New York Times. She is at work on a book about black Texas foodways with Chef Christopher Williams of Lucille's in Houston. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Olivia Terenzio edited this episode and Katie King is Gravy's fact checker. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is my co-host, Sarah Campmilo. My co-host, Mary Beth Lassiter, serves as our publisher. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to see our films. Be sure to watch Helen the Legend for Introduction to Helen Turner, a barbecue pit mistress in Brownsville, Tennessee, and our 2022 Lifetime Achievement Award winner. While you're there, please consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. 